0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Luke chapter 10, we continue into our discussion of the parables where we've been all summer long. Last week we looked at uh, the cost of discipleship and the counting the cost perspective. And so we looked at the parable where Jesus talks about Um, you wouldn't have an individual begin to build towers without really evaluating whether he had the money and the finances and resources to finish that job. You wouldn't have a general go into battle unless he evaluated the, the soldiers and the resources that he had to win that war. And so we also, as believers, have to evaluate the cost of what it looks like to follow Jesus and whether that's worth it or not. And so Last week we said our parable point was a careful calculation is needed when choosing to follow Jesus, understanding that by choosing to follow Jesus, there will be at times what feels like great loss, but the great gains enjoyed on the other side of the loss makes the decision to choose him worth it. And so we said when we keep our eyes on the gains that we get from following Jesus, it makes whatever temporary loss we feel like we experience here on this earth worth it. And I challenged you last week that the gains that I see us enjoying from Scripture Include the perspective on the past that sufferings and trials and difficulties. When we look back upon those things, we can see God working and moving in good ways. That uh, He's promised that things always work good for the uh, for those who love Him, um, and we can oftentimes see that immediately. Sometimes not, but a lot of times we can. We can see how God works and moves good for His children. So, following Jesus gives us perspective about the bad things that we experience. It also gives us purpose for the present. Uh, Jesus gives us purpose for our present that extends beyond just living for ourselves, but living for something far greater than ourselves. And then we also get peace for the future, right? Like we know where we're headed, we know where we're going, and we also know that our life extends beyond this one, that life doesn't end when death happens, that uh, we have something promised for us that exceeds what we enjoy here. Today we're looking at the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. I want to read our text this morning, starting in verse 25, and then we're going to jump right in and see what Jesus would have us hear He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Our summary sentence for today, as Christians, we ought to read God's word with a desire to maximize rather than minimize the way of life it calls us to. Changing our question from who must I serve to how may I serve. As Christians, we ought to read God's word with a desire to maximize rather than minimize the way of life it calls us to. Changing our question from who must I serve To how may I serve? For our kids, Christians are called to be good neighbors to everyone. Now, the context of this parable, as we've already seen just by reading it, is that there's a lawyer who's trying to trap Jesus with questions about serving. Uh, He he stands up and wants to question Jesus. He wants to test Jesus, though. He wants to kind of trap Jesus. He's got some type of agenda, uh, and he hopes to, in, in questioning Jesus, catch Jesus in a situation where it validates himself. Um, I think a uh, a key discussion point early on in this text is where Jesus responds to his initial question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? Two important questions that Jesus asks there, and I think it's two important questions that have implications for us too today. What does the law say and how do you read it? The implication there being, how do you understand what you've just read? Because we can read the same thing, but we can understand it differently, right? Pending how we read it, it may shape our reaction to it, right? I've had teachers before come to me with an email from a parent, and they're fired up, and they'll bring it to me, and they're like, you won't believe how this parent talked to me and, um, and what they said to me, and they'll share it with me. And for whatever reason, I just read it differently, right? Like it doesn't come across the way that it came across the teacher. We've read the same email, but we've read it differently. We've understood it differently, and therefore it causes a different reaction in us. And so then we'll have a discussion, and I'll try to share my perspective. They'll continue to share theirs, and we'll come up with a a game plan for how to respond to the parent based on kind of combining how we've read the email separately. Jesus challenges this, this lawyer. He says, what does the law say, and how do you read it? Meaning, What does it say? But then also your interpretation of it's going to be key, too, as far as how we proceed in these discussions. Now, what do we know about this lawyer here? Well, by being a lawyer, he would have been a student and even an expert of the law, the the, the Old Testament law, right? Because in Israel, he's a lawyer, which means he interprets the law. But remember, at that time, Israel would have been a nation or, you know, a nation under the bondage of Rome at that time, but a nation in their thinking, right? So their laws would have been not just spiritual laws, but also their, their normative laws too for life, right? So as a lawyer, it's not just that he's a scholar of the Old Testament. He's a lawyer in all the sense of taking the law and directly applying it to everyday life. Just like our lawyers are expected to be experts in the law, he too would have been an expert in the law. And also with a twist on it, because as we know, lawyers look for loopholes in the law, right? Like They look for how to directly apply the law to the benefit of the, belie- of the individual who has like, recruited their services. So a lawyer is going to know the law, is going to read it in a certain way, oftentimes in a way that gives benefit to the person who is utilizing their services. And so this lawyer is probably no different. He's a student of the law. But he's a student of the law for the purposes of interpreting it to the benefit of others. So what we have here is a discussion between a law expert and the author of the law, right? Jesus is the author of what he has become an expert at, this this lawyer, right? And so the dialogue and the discussion is happening between an expert and the author of it. The text tells us that he's not sincere in his questioning, right? So he doesn't come with a humble heart looking to... To better understand he's not good soil showing up and expecting the seed to be spread in such a way where it takes root in his life. He's not sincere. The text tells us that he comes with a, an agenda in his questioning. Um, he wants to test Jesus, and then as they get deeper into the discussion, it talks about him wanting to justify himself. So we know he's not sincere. We know that he wants to excuse himself from too much responsibility here, right? He's, he's looking for a loophole in the the words that are being used, right? So as they're dialoguing, uh, Jesus is asking him questions right back. So the lawyer expects to be the one making the questions and and Jesus is responding with questions and the lawyer dials in on this specific word here about neighbor, right? So in his response, he says, well, I know what the law says. The law says this, that we're to love our neighbors as ourselves." and Jesus says, yeah, you're right. So why are you asking me questions here? Like, you know the answer to these questions. And so then the lawyer goes further and says, well, who's my neighbor, right? Just like a lawyer would, like, let's, let's hone in on this specific word. Let's interpret this word. Let's make sure we have good understanding of this word with the goal of minimizing responsibility for the lawyer, right? Like, if I can deduce who my neighbor is, now I know very specifically who I'm supposed to serve, right? And it kind of lets me off the hook, potentially, of serving others. So he's not sincere. He wants to excuse himself from too much responsibility. Jesus responds with uh, the parable that we see here, the Good Samaritan. What does the parable accomplish for us? We're going to see, it reminds us that the world is broken and that there are needs of healing all around us, right? The parable only takes place because there's tragedy that takes place at the beginning. It reminds us of how sinful our world is. That here's an individual who's just walking down a road and he's attacked by people who have planned to rob individuals who travel this path. Right? It's, a, it's a sign, again, of our brokenness, of this world that we live in, that being fallen. Because we live in a fallen world, there are needs around us where people need to serve. Right? So we live in a fallen world. We talked about this last week as believers. How do we function and live in a fallen world? Well, today we're saying that there are needs around us. There are needs around us because we're in a fallen world. We need to be mindful of those to help heal those needs. It reminds us also that we can be very religious... And be operating our life without love for others. We won't get into it too much with the priest and the Levite, but notice here up front, there are two other individuals who do not serve in this capacity here, who do not respond to the individual in need. Um, I think Jesus is strategic in that he starts with the priest, who would have been uh, involved in the sacrifices at the temple. Then he stair steps down to the Levite, who would still have been very religious, but not a descendant of Aaron and therefore not an official priest in the temple, but one who did carry out temple duties. So you've got a priest, you've got a Levite, very religious, very spiritual individuals who just walk right by, who see a need, see a man who's injured, and do nothing for him. Jesus could have kept going and could have kept stair-stepping down from the perception of super-religious to less religious, but he goes all the way to the very bottom in this lawyer's mindset, and says, then a Samaritan comes. Because the Samaritan would have been at the bottom of the rung for him, right? It would have been that that racial tension between the Jew who kept himself uh, sexually and uh, nationally pure during the uh, captivity time, right? So when they're taken off to captivity, The Jews continued to stay true to the Jewish nation by by marrying within that. The Samaritans were those who began to mix outside the Jewish nation, right? So the Samaritan was looked down upon by the Jew. So Jesus jumps all the way down to the least likely individual to be praised for his faithfulness and says, the Samaritan, not the priest, not the Levite, it's the Samaritan who acts here, who serves here. It reminds us that we can be very religious if we're not careful and yet operate our life without love. It also reminds us that the worst stereotypes about people groups don't define individual people. It's always important for us to remember, right? Stereotypes uh, in general can be very true sometimes, but it should never define our interaction with individual people, right? Individual people should never be defined by stereotypes of, of big people groups whether that's skin color or cultural type differences, um, or even like fan bases for college football, right? There are stereotypes that are generally true, right? Generally true, but not always true about individual people. And it should not shape our interaction and our um, willing to serve based on those type of stereotypes. Um, What we see here in this story is the expected villain from the Jewish side of things, the Samaritan, Actually turns out to be the hero here. It also reminds us that serving Jesus requires a willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. It reminds us that serving Jesus requires a willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. First John chapter 3. Kind of the response to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 we see how Jesus loves us. God loved us and sent Jesus, who also loves us, to die on the cross for our sins. 1 John 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Right? The idea here being that if we have experienced God's love, if Jesus has loved us as he has by dying on the cross, saving us from our sins, how can we not then love others? That's the, that's the natural Christian response is to love others in response to the love that we've experienced. Already shared with you, this is a passage of questions and counter questions that we see here, right? The lawyer starts the questioning, Jesus responds with his own questions, which is strategic and we'll see how it's strategic here in a minute. Um, the lawyer begins with how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says what's the Bible say and how do you read it? The, neighbor, the lawyer responds and says who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a parable and says who acted like a neighbor? Right? Their dialogue is primarily in the form of questions, strategic questions that Jesus responds to and we'll see how he uses that tool as we get into it. Let's start by looking at number one. View the Bible as your way of life. View the Bible as As your way of life. I think Jesus points us in this direction. Um, I put in my notes, one commentator said, the place to find the most important answers to the most important questions ever asked is in the most important book ever written. The place to find the most important answers to the most important questions ever asked is in the most important book ever written. The lawyer comes asking questions, and Jesus immediately turns him to the source of truth, the source of answer for that great question. Right? For all of us, we need to remember that. That the Bible is our authoritative source for guiding us and directing us in this life. For our youth, like, hear me on that. The best answers to life's questions are not your peers who are the same age as you. I have to, I have to talk with our middle schoolers about this constantly. Right? They'll come into my office. I'll be addressing a conversation that they've had, and I'm going to tell them, like, hey, your peer is not the best person to get an answer about that type of question, right? They're not an authoritative person on that. They they, they don't know the answers that you're asking for there. That's not your source for answers, right? Whether that's an adult, a spiritual leader, uh, ultimately somebody who's going to take you to God's word. Right where the ultimate answers can be found. And that's what Jesus does here with the lawyer. He prompts in and reminds him that the greatest questions are answered by the greatest book. We need to remember that. Number one, it's, it's important though for us to have the right motivations when we come to God's word. If we're gonna get the answers that we're looking for, we have to have the right motivations when coming to God's word. We've talked in recent weeks about the condition of our heart soil, right? That if our heart's not right, the word's going to fall on our hearts and it's going to have different results than what, what is ideal, right? The ideal response is that the word falls on our hearts. It takes root in our life. It drives deep its root system and springs forth fruit. But if our hearts are hard, if they're shallow, if they're crowded out with the business of life, it's not going to bring forth fruit. Well, the motivation that we have in coming to God's word is important as well. The Bible is not our means for validating our desires. Right? We don't come trying to make the word say what we need it to say to live the way that we want to live, and that's what he's doing here. He comes testing Jesus because he wants Jesus to answer in certain ways that validates the way that he's living. We probably all know people that do that, that go to God's word, twist it, and manipulate it in hopes of having it say what they need it to say to live how they want to live. And that's not the purpose of God's word, and that's not how it works, Right? It's a sword that cuts our heart. We don't get to cut it up and divide it up to make it say what we want to say. It cuts us and divides us, right? It makes us into the image of Christ. And so it's important that our motivations when coming to God's word are are right and pure. It's not a means for validating our desires. It's also not a means for justifying our performance. We'll see this more in a minute, but the lawyer wants to excuse himself from further responsibility, right? It says that he wants to justify himself. So when he asked the question, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the law say and how do you read it? Well, he quotes scripture here. He quotes scripture. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. Go do this and you'll live. But desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Like he wants to know that he can minimize the expectations, check off the box and say, yeah, I've done that. Again, the Bible is not for that purpose either. It's not meant for us to come to it and to validate our desires, nor is it to come to it and to justify our performance as though we have lived up to it. We have to come with the right motivations when coming to see and hear from God's word. We also, number two, need to ask good questions when coming to God's word. We need to ask good questions when coming to God's word. Let's take a deeper look at some of the questions that are thrown around in this passage. The Bible has answers for eternal questions. The Bible has the answers for eternal questions. All these gains that we've talked about last week, the, the questions that come when we talk about why do, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why do Christians go through trials and difficulties? Um, the, the questions about the future, like like what is life, what does life beyond this life look like? Like all those answers are wrapped up in God's word. It answers the eternal questions that our heart is asking. For our youth that again are sitting under the teaching of God's word here, that are under the authority of your parents, but are still potentially questioning your own faith, maybe never yet having made a profession of faith in all that you've heard from 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 church and from your parents and whatnot. The Bible answers the greatest questions that your heart is asking. As you continue to grow and develop and you're learning more and more and culture is confronting you with its own versions of these answers, the Bible answers these eternal questions. Now the lawyer comes and, and poses a good question here at the beginning. It is a good and appropriate question that all of us should ask, right? How do I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a right question. It's an important question to ask. The assumption from him seems to be there is something specific that can be done or needs to be done to earn eternal life. Now, Jesus counters that question, knowing that he's trying to be tested. What's written in the law and how do you read it? I wonder if there's a bit of sarcasm even when Jesus is talking here, right? Like, like in my words, it's as though Jesus is saying, I don't know, law expert, what does the law say, right? Like, why, why are you asking me? You're the lawyer. You know the law, right? Like, like, speak it to us. Because he's in a presence where he's asking this question in the, uh, in the um, earshot of other people, right? And so Jesus just simply responds. He doesn't fall into the trap of being tested. He says, hey, tell me what rules we're playing by here, right? You tell me what you think the law says and how you have read it. The lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Well, where does he get this answer from? Well, he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. All right, he's quoting from the Old Testament law. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. Both of these combined give us these commands, the idea that we're to love God and we're to love others. All right? he understands what the Bible has to say on these issues. His summary then would be, we're to obey God's commands perfectly by loving him and loving others always. And Jesus responds and says, yeah, and if you do that, you'll live forever. We see this concept of loving God and loving others in the Ten Commandments, right? Right, The tablets are kind of broken up in that way where you've got the first part of the Ten Commandments being all about how we love God, then the other portion being how we love others well, how we serve others well. The lawyer knows what the law says that we're to love God, we're to love others. The Bible also has answers for our personal inadequacies, though. Jesus says, do this and you will live. Jesus tells him to live out the answer he gave, implying that he hasn't at this point, right? That's a a key point here, too. Jesus says, you're right. That's what you have to do to to, to inherit eternal life. Now go do that. Now, now the lawyer's probably taken back a little bit because what he was hoping for was Jesus saying, hey, buddy, you've already got it, right? You've already got eternal life. You've already done this enough. You've already loved God and loved others enough. You're covered, right? You've got eternal life. You've inherited it. That's not what Jesus says, though. And says he says, yeah, your answer's right. Go and do that. The lawyer gives the right answer. Jesus affirms the answer, But now there's this question that needs to be asked because what's still at stake is is whether the lawyer meets the criteria, right? The question now is, has the lawyer done it, right? Has the lawyer done it? And we see that the lawyer then responds with the wrong question next, right? We're getting ready to take our eighth graders at Trinity to um, Snowbird, right? It's not uncommon for me at this time to get an email from a parent saying, how does my kid go on this trip, right? It's also not uncommon for me to then respond and say, you need to complete the form, right? I like to be proactive and go ahead and anticipate the next question, which is, where's the form, right? Because you haven't filled it out yet, most likely. So I'll say, you need to fill out the form. Underneath that, I'll say, and here it is. It's been sent to you so many times already, right? Uh, but you just click on this, you sign up your kid, and they can go on our trip, Right? I'm not using it as a teaching opportunity like Jesus is. So Jesus responds and he doesn't go ahead and answer that next question. He kind of leaves it there. He leaves it there and forces the lawyer to ask, right? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what do you think you have to do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer says, well, I think what the law says is that I have to love God and love others with my whole heart, with my whole being. Jesus says, you're right, go and do that. Right? So now the lawyer w- was left with the, well, I guess I haven't done that yet, right? And so he has to ask his second question. He has to get further clarification. The bad follow-up question is, who is my neighbor? That's not what the question should have been. I'll tell you what the better question would have been here in a minute. The bad follow-up question that he does give, though, is who is my neighbor? He is attempting to lower the expectations of the law to make it manageable for him to obey, right? What he's heard from Jesus is, you gotta be perfect at loving God and loving other people. Go and do that. Go, go and love your neighbor as yourself. So he steps back and says, well, give me clarification on who my neighbor is because maybe, maybe you're wrong. Maybe I have done this. Maybe I don't need to do anymore, right? Let me, let me minimize this. Let me make it manageable so that I can obey it. The lawyer gets very word specific here. He wants to know how big is my neighborhood. How many neighbors are in this neighborhood that I'm supposed to serve well, Right? What, what, is the, what is the broad scope? Who do you expect me to serve? How big is the neighborhood? How many neighbors must I love like I love myself? He wants to redefine the answer to make his own life the solution to the question. What he'd love is for Jesus to say, everybody listening, you have to love God and love others like this gentleman right here, the lawyer, right? Right? Like, follow his example, because he, he has attained this status. He has inherited eternal life, but he doesn't do that. The lawyer says, well, well, who's my neighbor? The follow-up question is warranted, but not this one, right? He understands the requirement. He understands it's not possible at face value, and therefore wants to know how to really understand it, since it isn't possible to live that way towards all people at all times, right? I imagine conviction is setting in with this guy, Right? He's been confronted by Jesus. He has to verbalize the law because this is a portion of the law that the Jewish person would have probably recited every morning, right? This was a key concept for the law for them. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This was very familiar, right? He is an expert in the law, yes, but he is quoting a section of the law that everybody knows. Jesus confronts him with this and he knows conviction sets in. I don't do this, right? Right? I don't do this all the time at all places with all peoples. I don't. Who's my neighbor? Minimize it for me, Jesus. Let me know that I have done enough by singling out some people that I'm supposed to do this to and therefore leaving out some others that I don't have to do it to, particularly those who I haven't done it to. He's probably feeling guilty conviction. No one can live like this all the time. Romans 3 tells us that, right? No one is good like this. No one is sufficiently good. Here's what the better question should have been from him. Lord, how do, I, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, what does the law say? Well, the law says I have to love God and love people perfectly. Jesus says, yeah, that's what you have to do. The follow-up question, the better question would have been, well, what do I do if I failed to love God and love others properly? Because that's what the gospel answers. The gospel answers that question with, Jesus has done it for you. Jesus has loved God perfectly, and he has loved others perfectly when you could not. Do you have to be righteous? Absolutely. You have to be righteous to inherit eternal life. The law is not given to make us righteous or to show us righteous, but to show us we are sinners in need of righteousness. Galatians 3. And the law points us to our need for Jesus. It doesn't point us to come back and say, okay, let's, let's read the law differently than what it says so that it excuses my failures and I still get in, that I still get eternal life because of my performance, that I'm still good enough, right? That's not what the law is for. It doesn't, it doesn't show us uh, that we can be righteous. It doesn't make us righteous. No, it shows us that we're sinners in need of righteousness, Man, imagine if the lawyer had said, well, well, Jesus, what do we do if we haven't done that? Like, we don't get a reset, we don't get a redo, we can't be born again physically and and have another chance at this. What do we do if we haven't done that? No, his follow-up question is, "Uh, who's my neighbor? Because I've done this to some people. If we can narrow this down, maybe I still get in. Maybe I still get eternal life if we narrow it down a little bit. Jesus brings the parable next. Number two, View yourself as a neighbor to all. View yourself as a neighbor to all. The Bible is our way of life. The Bible answers the questions that we have. It gives us direction. It answers the eternal questions. And then when we get the eternal answers about what we're supposed to be before God and we find ourselves completely inadequate, man, it gives us the answers that we need for our personal inadequacies too. It answers how we can be right with God when we can never do enough to be right with God that God has made provision for us through his son, Jesus Christ. View yourself as a neighbor to all. The parable point that we've already read is that rather than trying to determine who is your neighbor that you are required to serve, see yourself as a neighbor to all and be willing and ready to serve. Rather than trying to determine who is your neighbor that you are required to serve, see yourself as a neighbor to all and be willing and ready to serve. Do this and you will live. But desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. The man is in need. The man is broken. He can do nothing for himself here. A priest comes by, a Levite comes by, neither do anything for him. The Samaritan is the one who reaches out and takes care of him. Number one here, Jesus redefines the concept of neighbor Neighbor calling us to serve all as a neighbor. He redefines the concept of neighbor calling us to serve all as a neighbor, right? If, if I were to ask you who your neighbors are in the technical sense of the word, you would start to think about the people who live closest by you. You may not consider those on the outskirts of your neighborhood or on the outskirts of your street as your neighbor. You may really simplify that and say, this person, this person, and this family, they are my neighbor. Jesus redefines that concept of neighbor for us here, though. He calls us to be the neighbor to everyone. He presents kind of a universal neighborhood here, right? You're the neighbor, and you're to see yourself as a good neighbor to all that you come in contact with. Rather than loosening the definition for who our neighbor is, which is what the lawyer wants, Jesus maximizes it. He expands it all the way to the fullest amount. Jesus' question centers on who is proving to be a neighbor by serving Versus who should specifically be viewed as a neighbor to serve, right? So he's, he's, he's changing the way this guy needs to look at it. He gives this parable, right? But he doesn't focus on the individual who is broken and beaten as being the neighbor that's supposed to be served, right? He doesn't say, now, who was the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan's neighbor, right? He doesn't say that. He says, who was the neighbor himself, who acted like a neighbor. That's when the lawyer has to reluctantly say, the one who showed mercy. You can even see kind of, I think, his heart condition. He doesn't even verbalize the Samaritan, right? If I were to tell this story to kids, right? The simple story, the simple story to kids, and I, and I got to the end of it, and I said, now kids, which one, which one served well? None of them would say the one who served well, right? No, they would say the Samaritan, He doesn't even want to verbalize that the Samaritan's the hero here. It's the one who showed mercy. That's the one who was the good neighbor. His heart condition is even further revealed in his answer here. The idea is not who should I see as my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? The parable shows what what it truly looks like to see others as your neighbor and to be a good neighbor to them. We are to welcome the inconvenience of laying down our lives, for those in need. That's what First John 3 talks about. Just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we're to turn around and lay down our lives for others. There's going to be risk involved. There's going to be sacrifice involved. There's going to be financial loss potentially involved. That's what the Samaritan endures here, right? The Samaritan goes over, sees this guy half dead, and begins to work on him, begins to take care of him, potentially uh, helps resuscitate him, providing him first aid, right? carries him to a place where he can be further taken care of, covers the cost of the bill, right? There's no discussion about, does this guy have insurance or not? It's just like, hey, here's the money to help take care of him, and if there's more needed, I'll pay it when I come back. As we seek to serve others, there's going to be loss for us at times. What we saw last week was we count the loss as gain, though, right? We count the cost of following Jesus, and we see the gains that come from it. The counter question that Jesus gives to the bad follow-up question is, who was the better neighbor? What we see is the Samaritan is the one who loved. He loved one who would have likely hated him. Now, I don't want to be guilty of what I said earlier. Don't, don't let stereotypes define individual people. But more than likely, because of how intense the hatred was from the Jew towards the Samaritan, the guy who was beaten up on the road, the Jew, would have most likely hated the guy who helps him prior to the help. right? The Samaritan doesn't bring that into account here. He says, nope, this guy is in need. I'm going to love him. I'm going to take care of him, even though he probably hates me. He risked much. He spent much to help him, and he expected nothing in return. Kind of goes back to what we talked about a couple of weeks ago about being the type of servant who serves whether there's ever a celebration party for your service, right? The Samaritan has no expectations that he's going to be paid back for any of this. He just serves the man well. We're called to this type of action not to get life, but as a way of life that's important we're called to this type of life not to get life but as a way of life right we can't live this way towards every person the way that we're called to with the goal of inheriting eternal life we we don't do it well we don't do it we don't do it enough so we're called to this type of life not to get life but it's to be our way of life this is to be what's normative for us to be self-sacrificing to all in need of our service. Listen to this quote by Tim Keller. He says, We instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor, Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. Jesus redefines the concept of neighbor. Now, I think it's important for us to see number two here. Even though the lawyer does not ask the appropriate question, I want to ask it, and I want to give you the answer to it, right? What if we've not served our neighbor well like we should? Are we out of luck for eternal life? What if we haven't kept the law, Lord? What if we haven't loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength all the days of our life? What if we haven't loved our neighbor as ourself? Especially if you mean every person that we come in contact with is our neighbor. What if we haven't done those things? Number two, Jesus is the good Samaritan who carries out these expectations both to us and for us. Don't miss the gospel here. The Samaritan represents Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes to us when we're broken, we're beaten, and we're dead in our sins on the side of the road. The one who we would hate, right? The one who we have hated, the one who we've been rebellious to, he is the one who comes to the side of the road and picks us up. He's the one that provides first aid to us. He's the one that that pays all the costs necessary to bring us to a healing state. He approaches us in our dead condition when we are hostile to him. He mends our brokenness. He pays the cost involved to bring about our healing. He is the good Samaritan. He is the one who heals us. He does it to us and he also does it for us in the sense that he has been perfect on our behalf. He has been righteous when we are not. So we stand before Jesus, put ourselves in that position today and we say, Jesus, what do we have to do to inherit eternal life? He would say, well, what does the law say? And if we're willing to say what the law says, we would have to say, well, Lord, the, the law says we have to be perfect. We have to keep all your commands. We have to love you so well and love others so well that we, we never don't do those things. And Jesus would respond and say, you've said well, go and do that. And we say, well, Jesus, Jesus I, got, I got a follow-up question. What if I can't do that? What if I haven't done that? And Jesus would look at us and say, now you're asking the right questions, right? Because I've done all of those things for you. I've done everything that you can't do, right? I'm the good Samaritan. I'm the one, when the priest and the Levite walks by, I'm the one that that brought you out of your sin. I'm the one that brings healing, right? I'm the one that speaks the gospel to you. Jesus is the good Samaritan. Don't miss that today. The application, though, for us, Two questions that I want to leave you with this morning. Kind of the opposite of the mindset of the lawyer. Are we reading the Bible well with a desire to maximize rather than minimize the expectations we find in it? A lot of people are really good at minimizing the expectations of the Bible. A lot of them have desires and wants and and other plans, and so they read the Bible, they twist it, they cut it up, they divide it, and move it around, and hey, this is what the law says. Now this is what the Bible says, like, I'm good. And Jesus says, no, we're not gonna talk about who specifically is your neighbor. We're gonna talk instead about how you should be the neighbor to everybody, right? He maximizes the expectations rather than minimizing them. We need to come to the word with a heart and a mindset and a motivation to say, Whatever it says, I want to do. I don't want to minimize it. I want to maximize what it tells me to do. Number two, is there anyone you are refusing to view as your neighbor and refusing to serve as a result? Is there anybody that you're refusing to treat as a good neighbor? Notice the Samaritan and the guy on the side of the street would not have been on good terms if both were healthy. They probably would have walked right by each other and ignored each other. Maybe would have walked as far away from each other as they could. But as soon as one was in need, the Samaritan is triggered to help. Is there anybody in your life that you're refusing to view as your neighbor? Is there anyone in your life you're refusing to be a good neighbor to? Don't minimize this. Don't say, well, I'm doing pretty good with a lot of other people in my life, just maybe not that person. Man, don't don't minimize it. Maximize it. See that Everybody in my life I'm supposed to be a good neighbor to. And if you're not being a good neighbor to somebody, today's the day to feel the conviction and to repent of that, to turn from that. Because the Lord says, go and do what the Samaritan did. Go be a neighbor to the the person that would be the hardest to be a good neighbor to. You go and do likewise. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this word today. Lord, help us to be honest in our own assessment of ourselves to see that We don't do what the law tells us to do perfectly. In spite of our best efforts and even in spite of what our pride and sinfulness would tell us, we are not good enough. So Lord, we ask the question today, what do we do if we're not good enough? And Lord, we thank you that you answer it. You answer it not with another list of things to try to do. You answer it by saying you've done it for us. Lord, help us to trust in that today. For those that have never put their faith and trust in you, God, help today be the day. Lord, speak to their hearts. Convict them of their sin. Help them to see that they've been reading the Bible wrong for all these years. They've been reading it and manipulating it to justify themselves, to test you, to see what they could get away with. God, confront them with that today. Help the law to be the mirror that it's supposed to be. That they would look into that mirror and not compare themselves to others and say, I'm still good. They would look into that mirror and see themselves for who they are. But they're dead on the side of the street and they need a good Samaritan to come get them. God, thank you for being the good Samaritan that saves us. Thank you for being the one who was willing to risk all so that we could be made right with you. Lord, help us to go and do likewise now not to earn life lord we thankful we're thankful that we can lead today knowing that we have inherited eternal life we don't have to walk away like the lawyer not knowing if we have it or don't have it we know we have it if we've been sealed by your holy spirit so god help us to go and do likewise not to earn eternal life help us to go and do likewise just as a new way of life because you've loved us help us to love you well by loving others well empower us to do that with your holy spirit this week help us to love in radical ways that don't make sense to the lost world Help us to love people that don't deserve our love. Help us to love people that we don't want to love. Help us to serve when everything inside of us doesn't want to. Lord, I pray that you'd change our inside to want to. That we'd see others through the lens of your word. Help us to do that this week, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.